Hello and welcome to The Midpoint. I'm Gabby Logan and today I've got a special expert-only episode for you. This time we're focusing on sleep, the sometimes elusive, and it seems in midlife increasingly so for lots of people, but it is, of course, the cornerstone of good health. My guest is Stephanie Romashevsky, a sleep psychologist and the chief medical officer of ReSleep, a virtual insomnia clinic. Stephanie's work is about much more than simply good sleep hygiene. She treats a wide range of sleep issues such as sleep apnea, narcolepsy, insomnia, movement and circadian rhythm disorders. But ultimately, her goal is to help troubled sleepers feel more energised and ergo happier thanks to a good night's sleep. It really is an aspect of health that can easily be overlooked or that people feel powerless to improve. And it's also something that can be disrupted during the menopause or perimenopause. And some of you have been in touch with your own questions about sleep. So we're going to put those to Stephanie later in the show. But first, a very warm welcome to Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for coming on The Midpoint. Hi, Gabby. Thank you so much for having me. The first thing I have to ask you before we get into many, many listeners' questions, this is a, an incredibly popular and it seems quite frustrating subject for lots of people. How do you get into becoming an expert on sleep? That's a really good question. I think a lot of people get into sleep in weird and wonderful ways because there's no clear pathway at the moment. I actually did a degree in psychology many, many moons ago, but I got this incredible experience to go over to Harvard Medical School and start working as part of their sleep division. And it just opened my world to this area of really circadian timing, so the timing of some bodily functions. Um, And I got to do things like try to work out whether astronauts could get onto a 25 hour day because of Mars. And from that, came back to London, did loads of clinical work with guys in St. Thomas's Hospital and started to realise how we could use that knowledge to help people who just generally couldn't sleep well most of the time. Excellent. Well, I'm going to just dive in, actually, because I think we could be here a long time to try and answer all of these if we put my questions first. And I'm sure a lot of my questions will will be covered by these answers. So this is a very familiar problem, I think, uh, that I hear a lot of friends say this, people talking about sleep. Um, and the question is, I've always woken up every two to three hours. Have you got any tips to help? I'm permanently tired. You're right. Such a common question. So I think... The problem is, is that we're not realising that there's not much you can reactively do when this happens to just make yourself go back to sleep. So we're sold lots of things like breathing techniques and relaxation techniques and sprays and hacks and oils and supplements and all these things to try and stop this problem. When the reality is it's probably more of an ingrained problem. It's probably most people asking this question have not had it for three days. They've had it for three months or longer, if not decades is what we see. Um, and, And it is this ingrained feature and it can happen for a variety of reasons. Sleep is very much like a flow state, like a like a river. So it goes up and down with life. As life goes up and down, sleep has evolved to protect us by adapting and realigning to the new normal. And the problem with this is that, of course, there are many different triggers that can affect sleep problems like, for example, 
menopausal symptoms is a huge one. Um, we've got things like stress, uh, new medications, illness. It doesn't really matter what it is. You could go on holiday and have jet lag or, uh, you know, a shift in your environment and changes and you get a sleep interruption. But the problem is, is that without the right education and the understanding of what sleep is all about, most of us then go and change a lot of our behaviours to try to help it. Now, for example, one of the biggest ones that we all do is if we don't sleep well, we tend to lie in it to try to catch up or snooze the snooze, snooze the button, snooze the alarm button. Um, or we um, or we try to go to bed early. We're trying to sort of preempt or cope. So basically, we're constantly adapting around this problem. But what we're really teaching our brains is that we are willing to adapt to the problem. So the brain just learns through all these different things, including all the hacks and rituals and everything that we do to basically carry on. So we don't realise that our brains think that this is normal and it's okay. The other issue is we don't usually want to do the things that are going to take a little bit longer than just a very reactive tool we can do on the night. So, for example, one of the best ways to try to alleviate this problem is to, for example, start with your get up time and change it. Make it the same every day for, say, two weeks. Be super consistent. Use light and movement in the morning just because these are great ways to reduce your fatigue in the short term whilst you're trying to get used to this horrible thing that you have to do even when you don't sleep well. And then push your bed time round. So go to bed a bit later. And what that does is it actually reduces your sleep window, but it also helps your body fill in the gaps. But most people don't understand that. And so they go for the reactive tool, like I'll just use a relaxation technique. And when it doesn't work, your expectations aren't met, your anxiety is increased and the vicious cycle continues. That's so interesting. I couldn't help thinking of analogy in the middle of all that where you like a toddler who won't eat instead of just being consistent and giving them the same, you know, kind of going, no, you're going to eat, kind of pandering to them. Okay, well, maybe they'll eat if they sit on the step. Maybe they'll eat if they sit on the hoover. Maybe they'll, you know, have a sandwich on the piano or, you know. And and actually what we're doing is we're just letting our body kind of win or yeah. our mind win almost if it's the thing that's kind stopping of, yeah, us sleeping. like a, a bit like also like a, I always use the analogy of a small puppy because training a puppy to do something all it really is is consistency and patience but that's hard for us humans to do because we live in a society of reactivity mm-hmm. like we've got to have something that can fix us yesterday or in the moment not realizing that perhaps we need to be as consistent as possible but one of the biggest things I think is really important to mention is that you will get sleep problems and they are totally normal and we sleep differently like we are not all eight hours you know consistently every single night it's just impossible to do that so with those kind of expectations I can understand that people are actually almost creating the issue yeah and so uh, the psychology of sleep is is so important to get your head around isn't it and that kind of comparing yourself to other yes. people is oh my gosh. never going to lead to happiness when it comes to sleep. Because no. <laughs> um, you always get those people go, yes, I do nine hours solid. I never um, go to the toilet. And <laughs> I just, I put my head the pillow and then I wake up, <laughs> um, which is definitely uh, not common <laughs> in midlife, that's for sure. Now, this is also another one that I, I hear next to me in bed most mornings. My husband regularly will tell me he's woken at two and couldn't get back to sleep till five. You know, if our alarm goes off, say, at 6.30 or something. So this question says, um, how can I get back to sleep after waking up in the early hours of the morning? 
So it's the same thing. If you've had this for a short period of time, then all those little hacks that you might see on the internet or people tell you to try may help if it's a very short term issue. But if this has been going on, it's become a bit of a pattern, then it's the same thing. Ironically, what you've got to do is actually try to keep your sleep window consistent by, for example, setting that get up time, pushing the bedtime round a little bit so that you are actually spending less time in bed in order for a bit of a short period of time to allow your body to fill in those gaps because the one thing your body does when it has a debt is it wants to sort of it wants to fill in the gaps it wants to increase the quality of your sleep it's not an eye for an eye I think a lot of people think if I lose two hours then I've got to regain two hours but that's not how your body works so sometimes you can regain the quality without having to have more duration of sleep and with that it does mean again so this is very similar over time very very similar hours Yeah, yeah literally and a lot of people think it's different so a lot of people either have a problem getting to sleep or maybe they don't have a problem getting to sleep they have a problem maintaining it or maybe it's a mixture of the two or maybe they just get up super super early but often the way we have to start it in clinic is we have to regulate those behaviors and once you've regulated those behaviors if you're still not getting it or it's still you're still being woken up and it's really affecting your daytime that's when we would start to put you through a therapy called cbti or cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which is the only evidence-based tool to actually fix it properly and that's a bit more of a sort of just a stricter schedule to stick to it's very personal it's adapted to you um but it does require a bit of work over time it's not going to be something where i can say oh just try this little hack yeah yeah, exactly or Mm. just try this little hack and you're going to get straight back to sleep and i think if we just normalize the fact that these things are quite common and it is quite normal to have sleep problems in that first instance then most people with the knowledge that actually everything's going to be okay probably wouldn't go and change their behavior so much probably wouldn't increase their anxiety so much and we would have less of this really consistent broken sleep but there is a way to fix it it's just not going to be that very it's quick not going to be have, have this particular hot drink or yes. do this you know puzzle whatever yes. it is <laughs> so but those they are very similar those those problems and the next question i wonder if it pertains to this it's about age i'm 65 why can't i sleep all night is age it must be something to do with this because I don't recall hearing my teenage friends saying, I was awake from two till six last night. <laughs> you know, you just, you just didn't do that, did you, no, as a teenager? Absolutely, yes. We, and also you get a lot away with a lot more as a teenager. So the things that we used to do that probably weren't great Pull for sleep, we got exactly, <laughs> we got away with it. But actually, as we get old, it is uh, older. We, it is true that we, we have a slightly more, I guess, la- lazy circadian cycle. So what I mean by that is, by the second half of the night, it's actually really hard to maintain a solid block of sleep. Now there's, again, yes, it it is due to age. There's various components. One of the components is we tend to be taking more medications and pretty much every medication affects sleep in some way. We just have to weigh up which is the better option here. And there's still things you can do to improve it. But um, yeah, medication can be a big one. Uh, Different types of chronic conditions obviously are going to have an impact but also REM sleep which is something that we all have more of in the second half of the night is actually incredibly sensitive so it's actually really easy to wake somebody up in REM sleep it's not the same as deep sleep and you're only really having it about an hour and a half or less a night but more in the second half so if you're having quite a big 
area of your sleep is REM sleep in the second half of the night and it's really really sensitive and you're aging so there's more things affecting your sleep in general you'll notice that you become more hypersensitive so what I mean is you're more sensitive to your surroundings you're having more REM sleep in that time so things that just don't affect you in the first half or when you were younger so light are noises exactly. all the things that kind of exactly might have... so that it's like a it's again true that with a few really important influential behaviors you can actually improve your sleep strength overall and you can reduce that hypersensitivity but we have to to a degree normalize that at different stages of our lives sleep is going to be slightly different and we have to stop looking back and going but I never used to sleep like this and we've got to see it as a new normal I'm not saying that we can't improve sort of perimenopausal sleep menopausal sleep or sleep as we age but we can't try to strive for the eight-hour block. The teenage, that we used to get. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. gone. <laughs> it's interesting. My mother-in-law, she won't mind me talking about this. She's ninety-two, <laughs> and she um, probably doesn't listen to the midpoint. But anyway, she <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't come when she stays with us. She doesn't come downstairs to about half past nine. And I used to assume that this was some incredible kind of block of sleep she was having because she goes up earlier than everybody else. But she wakes up. Um, in the early hours of the morning and she's got into a habit of then listening to the radio or watching some quiz show on TV. And my husband found this out when he was staying back at home at her house and could hear this noise and realise she'd left the TV on at three in the morning. But then she goes back and has a really good chunk of sleep, probably from about four o'clock. So that's obviously she hasn't got to get to work or anything. So that's her kind of way of dealing with it. So I, I guess when you don't have to get up for any reason, you find your way, don't you? She's found yeah. her way to manage exactly. to get about eight I, hours sleep a night, but over a exactly. 10 to oh 12 hour God, period. She's lucky, fantastic. And I think that's really important that, yes, of course, we understand in the research that, yes, it seems to be that around about an eight hour block of sleep seems to be the thing that's going to make us last longer and have less disease. But the reality is it's a bit like clean eating. We know that if we had perfect nutrition every single day of our lives, of course we would live longer and we would have less disease, but that's completely impossible to do. So we can't discount the rest of the patterns and ways that we can sleep. So I think she's doing jolly well and that we should all take a leaf out of her book. Just, well, what she seems to be doing without knowing it is kind of going with it and not fighting those early wake-ups, which she sleeps on her own. She's, you know, Kenny's dad's no longer around. I guess it's harder when you've got somebody else there if you want to put on, oh, you know, yes. tipping point at two in the morning. They might object to, to yeah. that. And also on that note, so sleep, we we have not evolved to sleep together, essentially. So we have okay. different <laughs> sleep-wake cycles. So the problem with that is that you again, there's this other issue of, I don't know, I feel, feel like society is sort of forces us to say, you know, a good marriage is you sleep in the same bed and that's how we do things. Actually, there are many people very happy out there, and there's lots of research to show this as well, that that actually sleeping apart is better because you sleep better. I think Cameron Diaz, just this weekend I read, saying that we should normalise sleeping in separate bedrooms. Oh, 100%. Um, 100%. We've (laughs) always had separate duvets, our whole marriage, which I think is our way of doing that. It would never work. Different temperatures. Yeah, yeah, different togs. But just also... If you want to wrap that around your legs 16 times, Kenny, fill your boots, right? <laughs> you do that We're you? not going to fight. We're not going to fight over it. The thing we are going to fight over is the next question. How do you stop snoring? He would say, oh of course, God. he doesn't snore. But yes. um, he says that I'm attacking him when I just gently poke him in the back and say, stop <laughs> snoring. Why are you attacking me? Listen, that's not an attack. Um, so can I be doing this in a more passive, slightly yeah. more peaceful way? Do you oh, think? my gosh. Uh, what a great question. Um, so snoring 
there's about 20% of the population that snore and there's different reasons for snoring. So one of the reasons will be people with sleep apnea. So that's quite an interesting one because they're not snoring from their noses, which is where a lot of people think the snoring comes from. They're snoring from their airways. And it's just different gaps in the airways causing the noise. And of course, their airways are even narrowing significantly or they're collapsing altogether. um, And it's causing them to stop breathing at night, which sounds more scary than it actually is. You're not going to stop breathing and die. But obviously, it's exhausting. Those people will be snoring quite horrifically at night most of the time, though actually there are some people that won't snore, but it's very uncommon. So you have those people snoring and they're very sleepy during the day. So they're nodding off at all sorts of different environments and situations. Then you've got the sort of the snorers that unfortunately their airways probably are slightly narrower just through anatomy. It doesn't mean anything's wrong apart from the fact that they do cause a bit of snoring. It is true that when snoring, narrowing of the airway becomes a bit too sort of narrow, I suppose, but you haven't got to the point where your airway's collapsing, that actually it can still cause a little bit of sleep interruption in you. So those people, if they could stop snoring, probably would be a little bit helpful. Then you have people that gain weight around the neck area. It doesn't matter if it's fat or muscle. I've seen it in both, where again, that can either cause sleep apnea or just cause snoring. It runs in my family. My anatomy is clearly that of, I put on five pounds. I'm not necessarily overweight, but my partner will tell you that I will start snoring. It's a good way for me to manage my weight, actually. That's so interesting. And so reducing your weight slightly... Obviously, you can't target the neck area, but just reducing the weight a little bit in some people is definitely going to affect that as well. And then there's many different reasons, which would have to go into speaking to an ENT specialist, ear, nose and throat specialist, into the airways and blockages, which can also cause snoring. So there's actually a lot of things. Interestingly, those who really are affected by snoring, especially if it's not super bad all the time, so there's a lot of different types of snoring. There are things you can do with your own sleep that we've already been chatting about, like really improving your own sleep strength, which makes you less hypersensitive to right. their snoring. Oh, it's I, see, once I'm asleep, I can't you hear can, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when okay. I it very rarely haven't gone off to sleep before him. Yes. If, if I hear, and I, I think his is also linked to if he's had a glass of wine or some alcohol. For sure. So when you have sedatives type uh, things like alcohol or some kind of pain medication, which can act the same, your airway relaxes even more, so it's more likely to be narrower. So absolutely, we all tend to snore a little bit or at least breathe quite heavily when we have been drinking. I see, yeah. I know he's not a chronic snorer by any stretch of imagination, but it's just, as you say, it gets into your head if the person next oh, to you is yeah. snoring, doesn't it? It's, oh, it's it really a, does. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, this is quite, uh, kind of can be quite worrying, I think, this, and especially if this person's had it a long time. I've slept walked since I was a child. I'm 48 and I still do it. Um, any ideas? Um, obviously, if you know you do it, you can put, things in place to make sure that you are safe but can it happen at any time any age so it, it can it's usually something that you're you're more tr- genetically predisposed with so a lot of people tend to just get sleep interruptions when they're going through stress or some kind of change in their environment internally or externally which can cause their sleep to be interrupted but there are some of us who will get night terrors or sleepwalking or sleep talking it's usually where your slow wave sleep is being interrupted so with that you can actually get interruptions from even things like noise so if there's a sudden noise in your house some of us might just wake up or just have a bit of an interruption in our sleep but other people it it will literally trigger one of these sort of genetic conditions where you will start sleepwalking or sleep talking. Now, the interesting thing about it is that 
that there are certain things that can make it a lot worse. So things like alcohol can make it worse. Things like avoiding sleep because you're frightened of it. So you're actively sort of restricting yourself. Unfortunately, when your sleep becomes restricted, you can also have a big flurry of them. Um, so there's 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 many different sort of reasons for it, I suppose, but really all you can do is reduce them. If it gets to a point where you're sleepwalking and it's becoming a problem in terms of you're hurting yourself or somebody else because you're fumbling over everybody or, or whatever, um, then it, it is something that I would say definitely speak to a doctor about and see if you can get to speak to a sleep specialist. There are some medications that have been seen to help with this, not always, but can do. But the behavioural stuff that we have already talked about, just regulating your sleep, staying away from caffeine, alcohol, stimulants, and even depressants before you go to bed. So you're not mucking up that sleep architecture and you're winding down properly and you're regulating your wake up time, which is one of the most important things you could do. You should notice that you can get control over it. It'd be interesting to speak to the person who asked this question, because I would be asking, does it get worse around various times, like when you go out and have a drink or when you are stressed? Mm. You know, because usually that's when the frequency will go up. Interesting. Um, you know, when you keep talking about regulating your wake up time, mm. there has to be a bit of a window, does there? So are you saying like, say between 6.30 and 7, for example, if that was, or, well, that, or yeah. has it got to be 6.30 on the, well, on the nose? No, no. So if I was treating someone with chronic insomnia, then I would be quite strict with them. But that's only because we're, we're under a protocol to fix the entire sleep. But if I was just talking to people in general, I would just say that the most important thing when it comes to sleep is timing, not duration, not quality. It's timing. And your brain loves to understand when to start the timing of things. Now, in order to sleep, we have to build something called a sleep drive. And the only way you build that is actually by being awake. Now, if you wake up at different times all the time, and they're quite significantly different, what you're going to start to notice is that your sleepiness and your ability to fall to sleep or your ability to stay asleep starts to become quite unpredictable. Whereas if you start being consistent with your wake-up time, your, or rather your get-up time, I should really say, when you start starting your day, the lights on, you're moving around, your body knows that you are up and it understands that you want to raise, you know, cortisol and reduce melatonin, um, then that can really help sort of, it stabilizes your sleep-wake cycle. It's fantastic. But yeah, you don't have to have it rigid. I would say the closer you can get them together from the weekdays to the weekend. That's the, the thing, better. isn't it? A lot of people yeah. go, oh, can we have a lie-in at the weekend? Imagine if you were getting up at the same time. Would you really feel like you, if your sleep started regulating itself properly and you started to get more of a predictable sleep opportunity and you were using it well, would you really feel that you needed to lie in or is the lying in a product? Psychological thing about yeah. trying to catch up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So interesting, yes, because I think it is people's kind of almost, they think they're doing a bit of self-care by having a bit more yeah. sleep at the weekend and might actually be affecting the quality of their sleep during the week. So yeah. it is definitely worth trying if this is you and you're hearing that perhaps your lions at the weekend could be affecting what's going on.
Okay, we're getting into the into the tough stuff now. What can I do or take to help me actually get to sleep? Because since menopause, I lie awake for hours. This is something we hear a lot, obviously, for perimenopausal and menopausal women. Mm. So first of all, I mean, off HRT or on HRT. So obviously, we do know that sleep can be affected by taking HRT, which is a good thing. So, you know, if your doctor thinks it's a good idea, then definitely try HRT. That could be a very quick pass here. However, if off HRT, again, it's going to be about building that sleep drive. So you're starting from scratch, really. Try to forget about what sleep used to look like. For now, your expectations of sleep do need to be slightly different. That doesn't mean you have to put up with it. I'm just saying that try to forget about your expectations from before, because that really does hold people back and it increases anxiety dramatically. So that's the first thing I'd do. The second thing I would do, again, start regulating that get up time. Make sure that you're getting enough light in the morning and move your body. And this is just, I'm just trying to teach your brain that this is when you want to be awake. Because if it knows when you want to be awake, it also knows when you want to feel sleepy. And then weirdly, in order to actually get you to fall asleep earlier, you need to start spending less time in bed and actually push it. So I am going to wait until I am sleepy tired. I'm going to give myself permission. Resting outside of the bedroom is the next best thing to me sleeping inside the bedroom. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'd focus on your you time, like enjoy some more you time. You probably don't get enough of it. So if there is a way that you can start something new that you will enjoy, I don't want to start talking about what relaxation is because I worry that a lot of people get, exactly, it's different for everybody and people get, anxious by just thinking they have to do something very specific when that's ridiculous. I just want people to feel happy and content knowing actually my sleep is going to be different right now. My body is going through many changes. My hormones are up and down. I need to understand and accept that. But there are some key things I can do. And yes, you're going to build sleepiness when you do this protocol. You will build sleepiness and you probably will build it so that you start feeling sleepy during the day. And people get excited about this. But the problem is they then want to use it during the day. And I'm saying to them, no, 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 for a couple of weeks, just push it around. And I promise you, you can start pushing it out again. Often this is why people like me exist, because actually doing this kind of thing on your own when it's become a real problem, because remember, when we start calling it insomnia, which is effectively what we're talking about when it's gone on for quite a while, there's so many different components. People don't realise that the sleep anxiety is such a big component, that the ingrained nature, so puppies learn a new programme, it's so ingrained, the hypersensitivity, the actual broken pattern. There's so many different patterns here that trying to do this on your own, if it's not right at the beginning can be tricky, which is why people like us exist and why CBTI exists to help you through to help. But it is basically sleep retraining. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and which applies for all these different problems that you were, yeah. were kind of uh, cutting across here. Yeah. Uh, I do like this one because I haven't had so much of these very early call times lately. I tend to be consistently kind of like around the 6.30 to quarter seven mark. But when I know I've got to be up at 4.30 or five o'clock, I, I kind of worry about it about two weeks out mm. <laughs> and think about, oh, God, I've got a 4.30 alarm call coming yeah. up. And then that night, it's rare that I would ever get off to sleep at the same time. Yeah. I normally fall asleep quite quickly. If I know my alarm is 4.30, why is my body going into some state of weird anxiety? Sleep, I think this is such a huge issue. Sleep anxiety is so powerful. And I think it really does come from us really not knowing from a very young age how sleep really works. And so without that knowledge, your anxiety alone has the ability to change 
everything. And I just don't think people understand that enough. So in order to sort this out, a lot of people might think, well, what can I do on this specific night? Or how do I change those specific ideas about my sleep? But actually, it's about seeing your sleep differently altogether and understanding this idea. Okay, sleep is a circadian rhythm. It's on a cycle. I need to understand that I can control to a degree some of it with these behaviours. And and to another degree, I need to accept that sometimes I am going to be too stressed to sleep and that I might get less sleep. And in that occasion, I do this as well. Like I've been, I've been doing this for 20 years nearly. And I absolutely don't sleep well all of the time. Most of the time I know what I'm up to, but every now and again, I've got to speak in front of 500 people. I will get anxious. I will not sleep. But the difference is I just don't get that sleep anxiety because I know I'm like, okay, what do you want to do, Seth? Do you want to go to bed for eight hours knowing you're going to toss and turn because you're in a dark room where there's no stimulus? So you're literally going in with just your brain as company And so what do you think is going to happen? You are going to get wired but tired super, super quickly in the absence of no distraction. Or you can stay outside the bedroom, stay chilled, distract yourself, enjoy yourself, build up that lovely sleepiness that you know you need. And then maybe you only get three or four hours of decent sleep, but it will be much better than the quality. And to stop worrying. I mean, our concept of time is very relative. It's very, um, it's a human's construct time. So the way we look at it, right? But actually your brain can do fantastic things with 20 minutes of sleep and it can also do nothing useful for you in eight hours Mm. depending on other factors. I think also it's knowing as I've got older this happens to me less and less because I know I can go ahead that day with a couple of hours sleep and get things you know what I mean I don't oh that's yes yeah and I think once you you accept that like yeah. I, I did this cycle ride recently and we'd had to get an overnight ferry to France and we were only going to get four hours sleep. I didn't sleep one minute. And then I had to mm. cycle for about 70 miles that day. And I did it. Yeah. yeah. And I felt great. And I was yeah. like, your, your body can actually do quite a lot. I mean, you, that's not something we want to be doing all the time. No, obviously. no, no, but you're absolutely you can right. pull one of those kind of yeah, every now and weird again. all-nighters uh, or at least it's one so hour every true. now and again. Yeah, You're absolutely right. I think and often I point this out to my uh, patients who feel that maybe the treatment's too hard for them. I'm like, but you've dealt with insomnia for 20 years. It's an invisible condition that nobody saw you could you had. And yet you went into work every day and you still did life. So it can't be the same as the chronic sleep deprivation that we're constantly talking about in labs where, you know, we're seeing this research and it's really bad for you. But that can't be the same thing. People are not dropping down dead in my clinics because they've had a chronic insomnia for 20 years. So it is quite different. It's a very ingrained. Yes, of course, some nights are horrific, especially if you've had chronic insomnia, but they are not all exactly the same because your body is busy actually surviving in the way that it knows how, which is getting rid of debt in other ways. We just not when we believe it's an eye for an eye. Oh my God, I've not had any sleep. Terrible things are going to happen to me. We blame everything for sleep. We love blaming things on sleep. We talk about it. It's like the next thing we talk about after the weather. How did you sleep last night? You know, what do you do sleep? Oh, well, I do this. And I can't believe you've got a problem. I just hit the pillow and I'm gone. We just need to normalize the fact that actually there's lots of different types of sleep out there. We can't, sleep is not this black and white thing. It's supposed to go up and down and realign with the new normal. We are not, we're we're not constant beings either. We're variables. Our physiological state is different every well, single women day. Women have 
cycles which exactly. change. You know, so exactly. as it's almost impossible to ask your body when you've got those different levels of hormones all month, you know, pre perimenopausal women obviously, mm. and then expect yourself to have the same sleep every night. Every single isn't night. It? Yeah. yeah. I mean, let alone body temperatures changing as well, which mm. obviously happens exactly. throughout a woman's life, exactly. not just in perimenopause. Um this is interesting. And this applies actually to people who aren't shift workers, but this question comes from a shift worker. Mm. I'm a shift worker, are naps bad or should I just uh, sleep when tired no matter what? I guess napping doesn't just pertain to shift workers, but particularly mm. if you've had to do, say, a week of overnights, then you're on days the following mm. week. Where are you on naps, Stephanie? So it's, it depends in what context you're using napping. So there, there are some instances where napping can be a sign that actually things are not going well because you're sleeping really well every night or you're getting as much sleep as you can and you're still napping and this is not a good sign and you need to speak to your GP if that's you. However, there are some instances where napping absolutely should be used in order to help you cope with the lifestyle that you're having to lead. The problem is when you significantly change your routine and you do that quite consistently, then what you have to understand is that will have some sort of impact on your sleep at nighttime, for example, or daytime, whenever you're also needing to sleep. So nothing wrong with naps. Absolutely not. And I think they can be great little tools if you can do it for a short period of time. And it's going to either get you through, uh, you know, a few more hours of your shift, or it's going to help you not have a full sleep so that you can have a full sleep tonight and just have a nap this morning, because I've just come off a night shift, for example, and I've got to go on days. But but it's we've just got to be mindful. There's no good or bad behaviours in sleep. It's just that you've got to understand that if you are doing something very consistently, it will have an effect. But if you're doing it every now and again just to recover, oh, I think there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. And we had um, one of the very early episodes of The Midpoint. Claudia Winkleman is a famous napper. She loves her naps. Uh, she has a nap at six o'clock in the evening before she cooks dinner sometimes if she feels she needs it. She's just, you know, really into napping and, and power napping. And I guess if if that's the way you've always been and yes. you can take 10 minute naps, then then keep doing it. Cause it must... Absolutely, yeah. And I do wonder, so if you think about the Spanish, for example, and the siestas that some, especially, you know, older jobs where, you know, it was out in the hot sun, you know, we understand where it comes from. But their, their expectations of their sleep at night is very different. They tend to eat later. They go to bed later. Their expectations of what's happening at night tend to be different. So I think it's all about, you know, absolutely napping is fine. But I often wonder with the people that, because it's actually quite rare to find someone who doesn't have some sort of sleep disorder, who actually can nap just 20 minutes of napping and they feel great. Everything's fine. Health is good. Sleep tends to be fairly good. I'd be interested to understand what her sleep is like. Like and, and what her perception of her sleep is. I bet she's got really healthy perception of sleep. And if she's been doing it ever since she was young, that's why her expectation is not Well, she talked changed. as well about on that episode, it's, it's a good one if you want to listen back. <laughs> she talked as well about how her mum always let her just be a teenage sleeper and just let her sleep because, you know, she realised it was so important for her brain and, yeah. you know, didn't kind of rouse her out of bed. My kids would say that I kind of go in at nine o'clock and go, you've had a lion, what's wrong with you? Get up. Um, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's a tough but, one with teenagers. Yeah, no, it is. It is because you, you're kind of mindful of them, you know, just spending their day 
stay in bed, aren't you? So um, yeah, I'm, I've never been the kindest parent when it comes to weekend lions and things. So, so napping, it's kind of, I suppose, a very personal thing to yes. the rest of your sleep and your sleep perception. Mm. So what is, this person asks, and I know what you're going to say here because I've been listening to you, Stephanie, for the last 30 <laughs> minutes. Uh, what's the best time to go to bed? Well, I think you're going to say there isn't one. There's a best time to wake up. That's what I think you're going to say. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, it's true that it will become more predictable the more regulated your wake-up time is. So you can probably tell, most of us who have good sleep could probably know and tell, dictate, I usually get sleepy around this time and this is what I have my bedtime around. But I think working backwards from a bedtime is not helpful because then you put in expectations which you're not necessarily going to meet, especially women, especially with different cycle, different places in your cycle. So it's much healthier to have sort of a, I love to think of the, our days in three, not two. So you've got your wake time, you've got your night time, but there's a place in between. And that place in between is what you should keep consistent. So you can wind down at the same time, get ready for bed at the same time, enjoy your evening, but just give yourself permission to go to bed a little bit later sometimes if you're not sleepy or you know something stressful is happening to you. Just give yourself some extra time or all you're doing is building up a bit of extra drive and that means you will have a better night anyway. So I, I don't like to tell people you can't have a bedtime but what I really mean is keep your wind down time the same. Your bedtime's probably going to fluctuate a little bit but mm. keep your regular wake time yes as much as you can. <laughs> and you haven't talked too much about gadgets. You know there's lots of things in the marketplace that are supposed to help people with their sleeping. You have um, certain pillows that are supposed to be very good, using silk pillowcases, um, sprays, obviously. Um, are all these things okay if they work for you? Or is there anything that you think um, is actually a really useful tool? So I think there's so many things out there. And um, the issue for me is none of them are harmful as such in terms of, you know, most of these sprays or little tricks you can do, you know, they might help you on a psychological, you know, a psychological way. Um, but the problem is, I find, is that when you've got someone who has had a sleep problem, which is usually the type of person who is looking for these things, and they're using them, when they fail, the problem that I've realised over the years is that it then makes these people feel that there's something very wrong with them because the rest of the world is pushing all this stuff. This will make you sleep. This is this will, this is 100% gonna work. There's actually absolutely no evidence that any of them can resolve when you've got a chronic sleep problem. So you've had whatever's going on for longer than three months, it is very, very unlikely to do anything. But the problem is it starts to perpetuate that you there's something wrong with you. And then people get very ritualistic and obsessive. So they start adding in loads and loads and loads of tools because they start to think, but if I don't even do this, then what do I have? And they think that things will get even worse. And so that's what worries me, that the, the people aren't taking responsibility who are making these things of, you know, actually, if you've got a chronic sleep problem, a sleep disorder, then you really do need to speak to your GP about it. And there are very evidence-based ways that can help you go from having sleep disorder to not having a sleep disorder. So I, I suspect if you, you know, if you've had a problem for a couple of nights and you're just looking for something that might make support you, make you feel a bit better, whatever, absolutely fine. And then there's the problem that a lot of supplements, there's literally no evidence to say, unless you've got a deficiency, there's nothing to say that they're actually going to do anything. If we could do that in the NHS, for example, we would be, but we can't. What about magnesium though? That seems to be 
quite Defic- popular. It's, for, um... Yes, it's popular. But um, again, it's deficiency. If you've got a deficiency, if the GP said you've got a magnesium deficiency, then 100% is going to help you with your sleep. But the research is very, well, there isn't any research yet that tells us that actually it can definitively do something with your sleep. Taking magnesium, if you didn't have a deficiency, is that going to cause you any problems? Uh, No, it doesn't seem to be, at the moment, as far as I understand it, there's not really much there to support that either. So that's a good thing. Um, But again, I just worry about people. When they come to see me, often they are literally doing a hundred different things. And just alleviating them of all these things often actually does interesting things all by itself, let alone adding the right behavioural methods to fix sleep. So, um, yeah, again, I I do not want people to think I'm trying to take things away. If you enjoy what you're doing and it's not ritualistic and it's not OCD and you don't have this idea that, but what if I don't take this, something bad is going to happen to me or it will be so much worse because those things are not true and they raise your expectations of what sleep should be and how it should be handled. And that's a problem because anxiety in itself makes sleep worse so that's where I think it becomes a problem what about a melatonin which is not available in the UK mm. but is available I mean literally on Everywhere the high street else. anywhere you know in America so, you can just get it anywhere yeah. what does melatonin do that's so bad that we can't get it in this country I think it's more that again there's not much evidence that it can help with a long-term sleep issue which is what a lot of people are using it for melatonin is like a signal it's not a sleeping pill as such it's not like a sedative it's more like a signal so if It's true that if your melatonin is all over the place, so we do have people out there that struggle with sleep because they have a a cycle which means that they get they feel very sleepy very early and then they want to get up very early or they get to sleep very, very late and they want to get up very, very late. So they're advanced uh, delayed sleep phase disorder or, or, or delayed. So there are very specific circadian rhythm disorders that mean that if we use melatonin on those people, we can sometimes help them have the signal at the right time, which then helps them sleep. Similarly, in ADHD, for example, that usually comes along with a delayed sleep phase. So melatonin in some individuals can be quite helpful in that case. But I think when we're looking at something that's very specific for very specific people, and there's a lot of people out there just using it as a sleeping pill, like it became a huge thing for children to get it prescribed in this country. And actually, the evidence shows that the behavioural stuff, the very simple behavioural things that we've been talking about, and a few additional things can actually improve it more. There's no reason for it. Does it it have any, can it have any long term damage? I think the issue is we don't know yet. Right. So it's more that we don't have enough information on it yet. But yeah. Um, it's been around a long time, though. Hasn't it has. It, it has. Yeah. People who are resorting to things stronger than uh, melatonin or magnesium sleeping pills, mm. um, obviously, nobody wants to be on sleeping pills for the rest of their lives. Where are, is, is there ever a place for those, do you think, for people who I are... I think so, yeah. Um, so in the short term, uh, you know, I don't think we should poo-poo sleeping pills because there can be some situations that you're in. Let's just say you're going through an acute stressful experience and you just need to get some rest because on top of everything else, that is making you feel so much worse. Then in the short term, sleeping pills can give you a little bit of respite. What they can't do is reset your sleep. So a lot of people think, oh, I took these in the hope that I could then just reset my sleep and I'm like but there was no behavioral work going on beside it so it wouldn't have happened um so there's that issue and then of course there's this issue of they tend to not work after a while so the sensitivity goes down 
Um, and then also uh, they tend to leave you with things like a bit of a hangover and they mm. don't put you through sleep the way that you naturally do. So you're not mm. quite getting... It really is a short-term fix. It is very much a short-term fix. Mm. And it's sad when people are on them for a long time. I think most people know now they don't want to be on them. They, they really want to try to come off them. And I would say even when we're in clinic with people who are on them and are quite addicted, um, I would never tell someone to just come off of them. Um, you've got to do it slowly. There is an insomnia rebound situation where you may have a bit more insomnia whilst you're coming off them. It doesn't mean that you have really, you know, it's got worse. It's just you've got to have the right tools available for it. What are the most important behavioural things during the day in your waking hours that you can, I mean, we know caffeine obviously is going to affect your sleep and quality of sleep for a lot of people, not everybody, for a lot of people, you know, exercise, diet, you know, what for you are the, are the key markers for good so sleep definitely, hygiene? So I would say it's definitely about that get up time in the morning and making sure you get light. Light is the most influential thing that you could do to affect your sleep and your mood and even things like your appetite regulation. What do you mean light? Mood. I mean, when I wake up at the moment, it's dark, right? So what, Yeah, what... so obviously natural light would be wonderful just because it gives you other things like vitamin D. And also when you get natural light, it tends to be all around you. It's not in a specific place, so you tend to get more of it. But artificial light right now is absolutely fine. You can get light alarms and things. I mean, I don't like adding tech to sleep because you don't really need it. But just to get more light, especially in the UK, we are all a bit deficient of it, basically. So the more light you can get in like the first sort of two thirds of the day, fantastic. And then you want to, a bit like mimicking the sunrise and sunset, is to reduce that light in the evenings in order to um, sort of mimic what naturally happens. We we are very entrained to our light-dark cycle on this planet, hence why we're sort of diurnal creatures. We're not nocturnal, we're not built, you know, we, we tend to be very... Um, irrational. We're not very good thinkers at nighttime either. We're very much daytime creatures. Um, so light is something that is very easily uh, accessible to all. It's free. If you can get it as much as you can, even if it's artificial, that's the biggest thing I could ever tell you. Exercise is the next best thing, especially first thing in the morning. It really helps your brain understand that that is wake time to start your drive off, to help your circadian rhythms, to help with your sleep quality. But also the most important reason to me is that actually it's one of the best things that helps you reduce fatigue when you have had a bad night. So, you know, you might not feel like you want to exercise, but you very rarely feel like afterwards that it was a mistake. Usually your fatigue levels are, are significantly reduced. So that's another thing. And then I would literally just focus on having a good day. So we are spend too much time thinking, how do I sleep? When actually you can't survive without sleep. It will happen anyway. You don't have as much control as you think when you start micro-changing everything about your day. So it's best to just enjoy yourself. Don't cancel everything. Don't, you know, start thinking too much about, I can't do this late at night because then I won't have a good night's sleep. You have to enjoy yourself. You have a drive to sleep. If you look after your wake time most of the time, you don't have to be a robot, but try to do it most of the time and you will notice it will look after itself, especially without you worrying about it. That's so brilliant. And kind of the first time I've heard anybody really talk about that with kind of such conviction, Stephanie, in terms of it coming up almost in every answer. The wake time and light just seems to be the things that it's it's really, really, uh, I, I find it so interesting, fascinating, because everything you say just makes perfect sense in terms of that keeping your anxiety down by just not 
being consumed by it as people seem to be when they're not sleeping well, which you can understand because mm. you're kind of dreading it then when it comes round later in the day. So um, thank you so much. There are still more questions, by the way, but I feel like we maybe we need part two in a few months' time. <laughs> I'll just throw this one in because okay. the only time I ever do this is when I'm on an overnight flight in a plane. Is it bad to sleep with your AirPods in your ears? I always listen to classical music for some reason on a plane to try and block out the sound of the plane. Oh, so, that, yeah, so I'm fall asleep, and then I end up falling yeah. asleep with them. Yeah, yeah. Is it bad to do that? At um, home? In terms of your sleep, no, as long as you, I would put on a, um, a timer that's all because a lot of us think well what makes me fall asleep might help me sleep but actually what helps you to fall asleep might also be the thing that stops you from getting into deep sleep especially if the tone and things change mm. so if it's like a podcast or something or even classical music and it suddenly changes <laughs> dramatically it might Iraq not wake you up. is coming exactly. on yeah. okay it, it, it you know it might not wake you up but you may notice that you're extra tired in the morning because you weren't able to get into those stages of sleep that you're supposed to go through but in general I wouldn't worry too much about these things uh, I mean one thing that is quite helpful you can get all sorts of headphones now like velour headphones that are flat against your ears or little um uh speakers that you put underneath your pillow that you can put a timer on and you get the the noise through your pillow but it's not going to affect anybody else so just things that might make you more comfortable I would mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. Is yeah because it's actually not very comfortable when you've got yeah. something in your ear is it <laughs> um which actually goes uh, to one of the uh, I said if we were finished and then I'm throwing another question in <laughs> it's, right, it's about position um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sleep on your side kind of girl. Um, I can't get sleep on my front, can't get sleep on my back. Um, is there an ideal? I know posturally sleeping on your side is supposed to be better yeah, for your the back, thing is, isn't it? Yeah, and I've heard lots about this kind of thing. But the problem is, is that even if you want to do, if, even if there was a perfect position, which there is not, you will not be able to stick to it. It's very hard. If you think about it, you know, we have um, supine snorers, people who only snore on their back because their airway collapses more or relaxes more when they're on their back. Um, and, you know, obviously we we have this old saying in sleep medicine, use a tennis ball, like turn a t-shirt with a pocket around, put a tennis ball in the pocket, so that you don't lie on your back so every time you try and turn on your back it will turn you back onto your side Mm -hmm. which sounds torturous Mm. um, (laughs) but also one of the only ways to try to get those people to stay on their side and even then it doesn't really work so Mm. the reality is you're going to sleep in whatever way you feel comfortable and if that is like a starfish so be it go for it Uh, uh, yeah luckily uh, I'm not hardly ever ever move when I sleep Um, (laughs) uh, thank you so much Stephanie you are literally a font of sleep knowledge and you've imparted plenty of that today and I think will have helped a lot of people and good luck at finding the answers to perfect sleep and continue <laughs> to help people as you do thank you thank you thank you for having me Wow, that was fascinating. Sleep is such a key part of our health. But as Stephanie said, so much of it comes down to how we think about sleep. And it seems like sleep needs a rebrand. It's as inconsistent and complicated as we are. Plus, you heard it here first, bedtimes are out, get up times are in consistency. Now, if you found this episode interesting or helpful, please do share it far and wide. I'm sure you know somebody who has a sleep problem and could do with a little bit of help. You can also hit follow wherever you're listening to this so that you never miss an episode. Huge thanks again to Stephanie. Follow her on Instagram at Steph Sleepyhead, or you can go to resleep.com. That's re-sleep.com for more information about services that she can provide. This episode was produced by Spiritland Creative and I'll be back next Wednesday with another brilliant guest to talk all things midlife. Bye-bye for now.